some general. I've kind of categorized them just so you know where we're, we're going. A few general questions and then some topic questions from the talks. And then we have a few seminary and seminary leadership kind of questions. So, Dr. Beakey, what books would you choose as your top picks for a youth or a child stranded on a desert island? I'm hoping there's parents involved in the stranding. It is, what books would you choose as your top picks for youth or children stranded on that desert island? Working? There we are. It's a question I've never received in my entire life. Um, I, I think that for teenagers, uh, young people, I would love, I would love to see them take with them some of the great classics of ages past, and I think we underestimate what teenagers can read today, what they can benefit from. Um, also, some of the great autobiographies, I think, make exciting reading for teenagers. When I was a teenager, my favorite book was Christ Our Mediator by Thomas Goodwin. But I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend that for everyone, but um, I, think, I think something like Grace Abounding by John Bunyan or Augustine's Confessions or, or books that really show the work of the Holy Spirit in the soul that would move young people to want to serve the Lord uh, would, be, would be great. Or books on church history. Um, you know, we're doing this series of books on uh, Reformation heroes, Puritan heroes, and now evangelical heroes from the 18th to 20th century is coming out with Douglas Bond and myself. And then I'm working with Michael Haken right now on ancient and medieval heroes to, to have a sense of history and the great works of God in ages past. And these books are written for, for 10 to 18-year-olds. For younger children, uh, there's a lot of stuff done by Christian Focus for very young children that, that works well. And we're, we're doing... Uh, we're doing a series of books of family worships for children four through nine. Volume one is out called Beginnings, and we're, volume two is at the printer. We're working on volume three. It's going to be nine volumes, walking, walking through family worships through the whole Bible with very young children. So if they're stranded on a desert island, hopefully they'll have their dad and mom with them, and they can do family worship. Uh, it appears what I've learned that I need a Bible and Christian's Reasonable Service and maybe another lifeboat for the children's books. <laughs> that was a good list. Uh, top, that, so another question here. Uh, this is from an 11-year-old. Uh, what are some of the ways that I could use my gifts and artistic talents for God's glory? know if I want to limit, limit it by giving suggestions. I think the best thing that you can do is continue to 
grow in godliness, grow in your understanding of God's Word, continue to study your Bible and, and uh, participate in the life of the church as, as you can. And, and, and I think the Lord will give you all kinds of different opportunities to do that. I'm not, not exactly sure what artistic abilities are particularly pronounced in your life. Um, and so if I, if I were to say, well, you know, work on writing or, or work on uh, something else, uh, I, I don't know if that would be exactly right. I don't know if that's exactly what you're what, where, your, where your gifts lie, but I would say just continue to grow in godliness, and oftentimes what happens with our own gifts is that as we, as we uh, focus on following the Lord, then he gives opportunities, and those opportunities are directed in the right kind of way, but, but the other thing I would say is this, that always remember your, your artistic gifts, whatever they may be, are, are to be used, as all our gifts are, in the service of others. So uh, I, I, um, it's, it's good that you're asking this question because what it means is you're, you recognize that. You want your gifts to be used for the service of, of God's people. And I would, I, would, um, I would encourage you to continue along those lines. Sometimes we can become so inwardly focused on our own gifts that it's about uh, satisfying some... Um, some desire that we have more than serving the body of Christ. So I know those are general directions, but I think uh, that's where I'd want to begin. Anything to add to that? No, that? no, that was good. I just would say um, it wouldn't be a bad idea to go to your pastor and say, you got anything for me to do? Um, I, I, was, I, I hired a boy when he was 11 years old to, to, to do stuff in my study, copy machine copy books for me and record books for me and I got really close to that 11 year old boy and it was it was wonderful or maybe maybe there's a Sunday school project that you can work on or maybe you can help people um, and maybe in our in our church we use younger children to to sit in between the Sunday school kids that come in the afternoon or who are from broken homes and to try to keep them calm and they get involved in the Sunday school whatever Whatever ministry your church is, is engaged in, maybe just ask the minister, is there something I can do? Another uh, question. This is addressed to Dr. Beakey, and it says at the bottom a name. John Van Voris, please tell him I requested it. Here, here, there he is, yes. Good to see you again. John was remembering something of uh, a testimony that you gave about an experience in Latvia and maybe how an experience like that briefly shaped your ministry, your ministry uh, affliction or sudden affliction. It's a personal testimony question. Yeah. Um, So I was in Latvia and I came out of my third lecture and went to an apartment flat. And uh, as I opened the door, it was one of those doors you had to lock from the inside. And then there were two guys on the floor above who came down. Before I could get the door locked, they pushed the door through it, open it, and they had, one had a knife in his hand. And they were shouting, mafia, 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 and, and other Russian words I couldn't understand. So I just thought they wanted my wallet. So I gave them my wallet, but then they, now they came in and they, they pushed me on the ground and they um, tied my hands behind my back really, really tight, and they tied my ankles together, and they put a rag in my mouth and uh, blindfolded me. 
And um, they took, I could tell they were taking everything, took my belt off of me and my wedding ring. And, and um, they kept running a knife up and down my spine and slapping the side of my face with it. They didn't puncture me. And, but I thought I was a dead man because they had told me in, in Eastern Europe, if you're in the hands of the mafia, you're, you're dead. So I just started crying out to the Lord, not for myself, because I just thought, well, my life's work is done. But I was crying out to the Lord for my, my wife and my, my family and seminary, the church, and Reformation Heritage books. And um, while I was on the ground for 45 minutes, while this was going on, um, I just had this, it was totally the gift of God. I had this total peace. And I saw that my soul was safe in the blood of Christ. Everything focused on the blood of Christ. And I had promise after promise from the Bible. Certain promises I didn't even know I had memorized. Maybe I didn't. Maybe I couldn't repeat them now. But they all seemed to connect to the blood of Christ. I just felt completely safe in the hands of Christ. And that was actually just a, a time of great peace while I was laying on the floor. But then when I would, when I would uh, start thinking about, I remember I, I started thinking about, well, I, I won't see my children get married. I won't know what will happen to them. And my hands were tied very tightly, I said. And when I started thinking about anything other than Christ, I got numbness going from the tip of my finger up to my, above my elbow in both arms. And I'd say to myself, you fool, focus on Jesus. And when I would focus back on Jesus, the numbness would just go away and go out the end of my fingertips. I thought it was a miracle. My doctor said, well, it's just you're hyperventilating because you were worried. And when you focused on Christ, you were calm. And so the hyperventilation went away. So he had a very natural explanation for it. But to me, it was very comforting at the time. And then, um, but finally they left and I was able to... uh, after about 15 minutes, able to break open my, my wristband, and uh, I got some, took a long time to get some help, and they put me over in a, a hotel, and um, as soon as I walked over into that regular, walked into the room in my hotel, <clears throat> it's like God just left me, just left me. And the opposite extreme happened. I felt so much communion with God in those 45 minutes. And I felt nothing. Nothing. In fact, I started having flashbacks in a hundred different ways. I can't explain it to you. But I was suddenly a policeman coming through the window and attacking me. I was weird. And uh, I was just overwhelmed. And I called my wife and I said, I'm, I'm, I'm coming home. I'm, I'm a basket case. And um, so my wife called my brother because they were coming out a day or two later to meet me, my wife and my brother and sister-in-law. And my brother did a, cal- uh, did a Pharrell on me, and he said, you know, you tell Joe to stay where he is. It's only the devil that wants him to come home. He's got to stay there and finish his work, and we'll be there and tell him to stay the course. So I thought, well, I'm no Calvin, of course, but I, I felt like I had to listen to my brother. So I stayed, and oh man, when my wife and my brother and sister walked through that airport and I could see their faces, it was unbelievable. <laughs> but um, yeah, and then, and then, you know, my spiritual equilibrium returned. But I, I had a high and a low of communion with God, and it made me realize 
this is my life lesson. It made me realize how radically dependent we are on God for every situation. And that no matter what God brings us through, he can go through with it, with us, and all is well. But also, without him, we can do nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. But the one thing also that, that really was special to me at that time, and just quick, I'll, I'll stop with this, was uh, when I finally did get loose, I, I stood up and I said, <laughs> I'm free, and they're gone. And what they did was they went over to the seminary, stripped it of all the computers, and sold them all in the black market that night. And uh, they left me alone. And um, I, I couldn't believe I was alive. And then I thought the first thing I got to do is I got to get back down on my knees. And I got back down on my knees. And I was overwhelmed with this thought. Like, not that I wasn't doing it already. It was my conviction. But I vowed to the Lord. I made a vow to the Lord that I would spend... Every minute of the rest of my life, living for him, these years that he was extending my life, to promote reformed, experiential, godly teaching through the seminary, through the church, through Reformation Heritage books, through my own personal life, I just renewed my vow to spend and be spent totally for him. And that's, it didn't reshape my life, but it re-energized my life would be a better way of putting it. Dr. Master, uh, maybe a personal question for you. Uh, in a different way, in the last couple of years, you've had a significant change in life coming to serve as the president of Greenville Seminary. And um, I know that there was a lot of prayer and consideration behind that. Um, how has the Lord brought you through that, and what new things have you uh, seen that the Lord may be laying before you uh, for the work in the kingdom? Yeah, too many, too many things to number. Um, it's been, it's been. Dr. Beaky just used the word overwhelming. When I, when I stop to think about it, either when I'm asked a question like that, or when, you know, New Year's comes around, or we get to the end of a school year, you know, these these moments where you reflect, uh, it's it's overwhelming. The Lord has been gracious and kind to me and to my family and to the work that we've been doing in ways that are uh, beyond what I ever would have expected. Some of the things that come to mind immediately uh, have to do with uh, individuals whom I've had the chance to meet, get to know. We're, we're so grateful to the Lord for our friendships here, for our church, for the seminary community. I've loved meeting the students. I mean, I mean, I kind of could go on and on, but but to summarize it, I would say uh, it, it's it's been an overwhelming blessing. It's not to say it hasn't been with without its challenges. Of course, there've been challenges. Uh, any move has challenges associated with it. Any uh, any new endeavor has uh, those same kinds of obstacles and challenges. But uh, but that's not the accent I would. Strike, and it's it's not it's not what springs to my mind at all uh, when I think about it. So uh, that that's I'm 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 overwhelmed with gratitude to the Lord for for what He's done over these past few years, and and for how He's uh, cared for me and for my family over these last few years. Okay, moving uh, to some topic questions, and here's one for Doctor Beaky, and. There are two, actually, that are very similar, and I'll 
ask one of them, and I think it'll cover both. Dr. Beakey, could you reconcile or flesh out a little more these two statements? God loves all people with some kind of love, and Esau have I hated. Yeah. <laughs> I expected that question. <laughs> so there's a view, say, for example, of Herman Hooksema or the Protestant Reformed that would say God hates the wicked every day in every way. So the fact that you had breakfast this morning, let's, let's say, assume now for a moment you're, you're not saved and you had breakfast this morning. That was the curse and the wrath of God because he's, he's fattening you for the day of judgment if you don't get saved. And the, and the fact that you have clothes to wear is, is the curse of God, the wrath of God. God hates you. The biblical balance would reject that. The other extreme, which is much more common today, of course, is God, God loves you all. God's, God's elected you all. You're, you're all going to be saved, and you're all going to come to, to heaven one day, which is uh, unbiblical and dangerous and deceives people from the other side. Now, what the Bible is actually teaching is that God is good to all, and that goodness is inseparable from his love. If you're an unconverted person, he has a certain kind of general love for you as his creature. He hates your sin. And there will be a hatred of God involved. But it doesn't take away from the fact that God has a common grace love for all of his creation. And so... Will that clothing you wear, that rain that fell on your property, and if you're a farmer and gave you crops and uh, the, the, the food you eat, if you stay unconverted and you continue to reject the offers of Christ and you go to hell one day, yes, then all these things will come upon you as the wrath of God, and they'll be like a memory, a never-dying worm inside of you, that you rejected all that goodness of God. But there is a common love that God has for his, his creature. And I think that's where Calvin came down and the Puritans, um, even though he hates sin and hates the wicked every day because they're living in a lifestyle of sin, he still has um, a kind of, uh, I hate to use the word, I, I'm careful to use the word desire because I don't want that to conflict with the will of God with regard to their salvation. But God delights to see the wicked come to him and be saved. He gets more, he gets glory from the damnation of the lost, but he also gets more glory from the salvation of, of sinners. I'll leave it at that for right now. A question for Dr. Master. If biblical wisdom, as you mentioned last night, is essentially connected with a a body of knowledge that includes knowledge of creation, then does it follow that natural knowledge is necessary for true wisdom, true biblical wisdom? And does this in turn suggest the necessity of natural theology? And it does say, thank you, with great anticipation of your answer. I'm not sure about that last part. 
uh, yeah, w- wisdom, wisdom requires knowledge. Wisdom requires growth in knowledge. Uh, I mentioned last night Solomon's wisdom being delineated in various ways according to the natural order and, and uh, all these elements of creation being involved in that. Things that we don't normally associate with wisdom are directly attached to the description of Solomon's wisdom. So in that sense, uh, the answer to the question is yes, you, you, uh, wisdom is the uh, application of knowledge for uh, the, a particular end. Now in the case of God, this is why wisdom and knowledge are combined together, I believe, in Romans 11 in that text we were looking at last night together, because God has perfect knowledge, God is omniscient, and that omniscience then is applied to the end of the good of his people and his own glory, but they do go hand in hand, wisdom and knowledge, and you'll see that over and over in the scriptures. I think the, the, the corrective I was trying to make, in, particularly in pointing out Solomon, and, and this, is a, this is a corrective I think we often have to make, is sometimes people divorce wisdom from knowledge entirely so that uh, you, you don't need to actually grow in knowledge in order to grow in wisdom, and that's just not what the Bible says. Now, in terms of natural theology, then, yes, it is true that, that as we grow in our understanding of creation within the framework of God as creator, we're not doing natural theology apart from biblical revelation or apart from the fear of the Lord. That wouldn't actually be growth in theology at all, but but growth in our understanding of creation and how God has revealed himself in creation within the framework of the fear of the Lord is appropriate. It, it's a little bit of, I, I, don't, I don't think it was intended as a trick question, but it, it's, a little bit, it's a little bit tricky because natural theology is often used in other ways than that. Sometimes natural theology is used in such a way uh, to, to, to separate it out from the knowledge of God we have in the scriptures or separate it out from a living, vibrant fear of the Lord. And, and of course, if that's what you mean by natural revelation, that it's this separate thing that we do kind of on our own in our natural state, well, that's not what we're talking about. That's not actually growth in knowledge, and it's certainly not growth in wisdom. But within the, within the framework, within the proper framework of an understanding of the fear of the Lord and a genuine fear of the Lord, then it's appropriate and it's, and it's necessary that we grow in knowledge. And one of the implications of this, of course, is that the things that we do in, in learning and growing in our knowledge of creation, and particularly if you're still in school and you're, you're learning things that don't seem immediately applicable, what I, what I would say to you is, from the Bible's perspective, that growth in knowledge uh, uh, is, it can and is used by God to cause us to grow in wisdom as well. And there are all kinds of ways that will manifest itself in your life as you follow the Lord. Another one for Dr. Master. It says, if a, if a church member would deny divine simplicity openly, publicly, online, or in the congregation, differing with the church's standards, is church discipline an appropriate response for that error if they refuse to recant? Well, in the, uh, in the denomination of which I'm a part, there is a, there is a distinction made between the affirmations that officers must make and hold to 
and, the, uh, and, and those who are members of the church. So, so at, a, at a basic level, we would say, no, to be a member of the church, you don't have to affirm the entirety of the Westminster Standards, but to be an officer in the church, you would, that would have to genuinely be your uh, confession of faith. I think the, the, the part here that there, where there's a little bit of a gray area, I, be, I believe the doctrine of divine simplicity is, is foundational. It's uh, highly significant. I hope that that's been conveyed throughout this week. There are all kinds of ways in which that's come into play. But I think the additional element here is not just the denial of divine simplicity, as, as serious as I believe that is, but also the fact that this is, uh, I don't remember the descriptors, but sort of a, a vocal, uh, you know, you mentioned online, vocal, active. Well, well that's, that's a problem not just because of the denial of the doctrine, but also because of the way in which uh, the, the individual, by that description, is, is directly... Uh, um, is directly undermining the peace and purity of the church, which, which again, we're, we're dealing with sliding scales here, but th- that certainly is an offense that, that it's right and proper for churches to address, even in a disciplinary way. So I, 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 that's, the, that's the added element here that would, would be of, of particular concern. But I, I, I do think that if you tease out the implications of the denial of divine simplicity, it's very, very serious error. Uh, but I can understand some who may be growing in their understanding of it or may have a misunderstanding of it who would, who would uh, not, be, not be ready to quite affirm it. But, but, then, but then there's the issue of division, I think, that enters into the, the way the question was framed. And here's one just, I guess, addressed to, to both of you or either of you. What... Um, how can we teach both the holiness and love of God to our covenant children in a balanced way. I guess that's a direct reference to Dr. Beakey's talks there. But the holiness and the love of God to our covenant children in a balanced way. The, how can we teach the holiness and the love of God to our covenant children in a balanced way? Yeah. That's a very good question. And... The best way to do that would be through daily family worship and by extension through our whole way of life. That's a generalized global statement, but I I believe that's important. Um, First of all, it starts with family worship. And if you're not doing family worship every day, walking through scripture every day with your children, teaching them day by day at the major takeaways from the chapter you're studying that day. And even if it's only 10 minutes, um, you're missing golden, golden opportunity to teach your children about God. And so uh, family worship is, I feel stronger about that than almost any, any subject. Um, I, I, I believe that it's the missing art it's the missing means of grace in the home today. I've been speaking about it all around the world. And uh, I've discovered that in almost every single country, there's very little family worship going on. Do you realize that if you belong to certain Puritan congregations, you'd be put under discipline if you weren't doing daily family worship in the 17th century? Um, 
And yet there are people today, well-meaning Christians who, who never heard of it and who don't know what to do about it. So this is what we try to do in the Family Worship Bible Guide that we publish that is transforming tens of thousands of families all around the world in different languages. It's, it's really a big deal in my life and I think in the lives of a number of people as they come to see the importance of it. You get to form your concept, the, the children's conceptions daily about who God is as you take them through each, each Bible chapter. Now, secondly, you then have to live that out in your, in, your, in, your whole, in your whole life, the way you discipline your children. You have a balance of holiness and love. The way you treat your spouse, you have holiness and love balanced. Children see that. Children see the way you respond to others. Children see what's important in your life. And if they sense a reverence for God in your life that has a balanced view of holiness and love, they will pick up those impressions, and they will grow in those impressions as time goes on. Now, some children may be rebellious, of course, for a while, but even if God does come back later and converts them a little bit later in life, they still will have those impressions that they saw this balanced view of holiness and love in you. You, Dad, also, as you were head of the household, and you, Mom, in your daily care and concern. So it's our living the lifestyle built off of the family worship that we lay as an under, underpinning. May I add something to that, Mr. Oh, yeah. Moderator? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I think, I think in, it, it, th those are very, very helpful. Um, I would also say that we need to continually put the reality of the, of the gospel and the cross of Christ in front of our children, that, that that's, that's the center of what it means to be a Christian. And, and the reason why I say that in this context is because um, if, you, if you think through the argument even that Paul makes in the book of Romans, he talks about not being ashamed of the gospel because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. And then as he unpacks what that means in chapter 3, what he uh, focuses in on is the fact that uh, what God does in uh, propitiating his wrath through his son's death on the cross for sinners is what reveals, he says, that God is both just and the justifier of the ungodly. So when you talk about uh, balancing holiness and love, I think what, you're, what, you're really, what you really want to be driving at is revealing who God is. And how does God reveal himself as the holy, just God and as the God who saves sinners out of his great love? Well, well that is most clearly on display, Paul says, at the cross of Jesus Christ. So as you are doing all these things, as Dr. Beagie mentioned, what, what needs to be central in all of that is the revelation of God in his son on the cross and the good news of the gospel, or the good news of, of, of Christ's death and resurrection. We're moving on to some uh, questions that seem to have a seminary or leadership theme. Um, can you give two modern trends that you see that are negatively impacting seminary education today? And it says cultural, distance ed, other. Are there trends that you see that are making seminary education more difficult? And just one or two. 
Uh, he is the more senior seminary leader here, but I will take a stab at it, and he can correct me. Um, I, uh, there are a couple broad trends that are very concerning. Um, some of these are more pronounced in some circles than in others, uh, but nonetheless, they are, they're all around us. They're part of the air we breathe. And, and one of them I would, I would um, put my finger on as a, a, an emphasis on convenience and on, and on speed above all else. Pat mentioned this at the end when he talked about the video that we just produced. Um, there, th- this is the air we breathe in our culture, that things should be easy, they should be convenient. They should be as quick as possible. Um, and, and, and that can even uh, have spiritual clothing put on it. You know, we want get, to get guys out there as soon as we can. Um, and we don't, we, you know, the, the, the church needs, uh, needs these men. But, but the, the, that's really all it is. It's thinly veiled uh, cultural emphasis on convenience and speed. And, and that is, um, that's detrimental. We, we, for the long-term health of the church, for the generational health of the church, both here and overseas, we need ministers who are godly, yes, and who are well-trained in the scriptures. We want God to raise up workers, and we're told to pray for that, and we do, but we want God to raise up workers who are approved workers who rightly handle the word of truth. That's vital to the, to the uh, health of, of, of the church. The other, the other thing I would Add to that, so that has a, a range of ramifications in terms of how people want seminary delivered, how they how, how they want it played out, what things they want included, what things they want excluded. The other thing that is related to that, and this is pervasive, um, and I and I am I feel confident that Dr. Beaky will agree with this because he's been an exemplar in in emphasizing these things. It it the the seminary has to be a place also where personal godliness, personal piety is cultivated. It is academic, and it is rigorous in that way and stretching, but, but it, it, we, in order to be a, a godly minister, you need to be a godly man. And, and much of that happens in the crucible of seminary education and, and, and so we have to think about that when we hire faculty. We have to think about that when we design curriculum. We have to think about that in how we teach. Um, and, and, and so separating these things, looking at it as merely an academic institution, is the death of seminary education. That's good. That's good. I, I would maybe add one more yet. Um, I think the, the structure of the seminary today and the board of trustees in most seminaries, there's such a hunger for more students because you need more money. And sometimes people who are very wealthy get on the board of trustees who don't have the same convictions. And sometimes professors are hired in many seminaries today that really don't have this combination of intellectual and pietistic emphases. And the net result of it all is that seminaries are setting themselves up to go in in liberal directions. Um, So, I think it's important to maintain largely um, ministers and elders as a board from from the denominations being represented to make sure that, and also every single faculty member has to be entirely sound. Otherwise, students come, especially half of our students are from overseas. And what happens with a lot of seminaries is these overseas students, they'll believe every word you say no matter what. I mean, they are so teachable. 
But it's scary if they go to the wrong seminary because they'll, they'll walk away with uh, error. So seminaries are training grounds. They cannot, you cannot have a checkered education. You need to know what you know, the errors are, but you can't have a professor in one discipline teaching something different on Genesis 1 through 3 than a, a, a professor in another area. And so I think this is one of the dangers of a lot of seminaries today. They're being driven by money. They're being driven by numbers of students. And so they're being driven by this twin emphasis of the Reformers and Puritans, intellectual rigor in the truth and a spiritual formation. We are, uh, here's a quick question. I think we could answer this one quickly. It's, it's, someone's curious about what does the, I'm summarizing this, what does the pipeline look like for future pastors, men in MDiv studies going, interested in pastoral ministry? And, um, is there a shortage? If yes, what can be done about it? So I'll speak uh, from our, my narrow frame of reference. Uh, there are really good signs in terms of increased enrollment. That's basically all we do is MDiv pastoral preparation. And so uh, there are really good signs in terms of increased interest and increased enrollment. But is there a shortage? Yes, there's a shortage. There, we, we have calls all the time from, from churches that are looking for a sound pastor and, and, and they, they can't find one. Or we, we hear from people or people groups that need churches planted and there just aren't men to do that. So uh, one thing that comes to mind, and it's the thing that, that Jesus tells us, is we, we have to keep praying for the Lord to raise up laborers for the harvest. And then to the extent that you know young men who may evidence these kinds of gifts, encourage them, talk to them about the ministry, have a high view of the ministry so that's something to which they aspire and, and, and point them in the right direction as the Lord gives you opportunities. Yeah, I'll just I'll just take a different tack because you covered that ground. Um, I'll do it by geogra geography. Okay, in America, I think overall we're encouraged. The number of applicants is increasing. We're growing all the time. In terms of Latin America, we're very excited. God is sending revival to Latin America and also Brazil, Portuguese speaking Brazil. Uh, but the Spanish-speaking countries of Latin America and Brazil, oh, there's a lot of men being called. And um, that's a very exciting. And also in Asia, there's, there's a goodly number. And in Africa, the, the, the weakest spot is, is Europe. Uh, it's, it's very bad, very serious in Europe. Uh, very few coming forward. Well, I know we're going slightly over, but here's a leadership question. And I'm going to try to summarize it. It looks a bit long. How do you as a Christian leader, I think this is the heart of the question, temper ambition or resist the allure of money or respectability or public success? And it's at the beginning it talks about the track record of public ministries in America. In other words, what, what do you do as a Christian leader, it's a personal question, to avoid those pitfalls personally and organizationally? No, no, as a seminary president, Dr. Beebe, go ahead. What, 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 some, what are things that you do think, pray about to avoid that trajectory? Similar, I guess, to the one of seminaries going into error. Well, personally, it helps a lot being older because you, 
<laughs> you don't have to prove yourself anymore. Um, you're just out there to, 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 for the glory of God and to serve God. And, and you get so many responses from so many people and you get so many emails and so many requests that you just you take it in stride. It becomes a way of life. And you, and you do what you can do and you, you think strategically about... I always try to put it in terms of an eternal perspective. What can be, do the most good for eternity? And uh, if today was the last day of my life, what would I do? Uh, that type of thing. Um, in terms of the area of, of pride and, and you know being, being the center of things and stuff, as a minister of the gospel all your lifetime, you, you've wrestled with that a lot when you're young. And I'm not saying that still, of course, there's still pride there, but it's different. It's different as you get older. It's, it's more just centered on service. And it's not a big deal if, you know, somebody rejects you or uh, somebody doesn't like your preaching. Uh, of course, you have to cope with criticism. But you just want to walk humbly before God for your students, for your congregation, in my case, for the book ministry. And I just want to, I want to just serve God, just be a servant. And so it also helps when you have a wife like mine who uh, would detest the smallest trace of pride in me, and she'll nail me. Um, so that's helpful. Um, she's a wonderful wife and very good to me, but uh, she hates pride with a passion. So that's helpful. Um, and we, you know, when you rub shoulders with people like John Piper and John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul, what I find, what I find is these guys who are, thousand times more famous than we are. Um, they're just ordinary guys when you get to know them. And I think it's the same thing with, I, I feel this from, from you, you know. When we talk together, we're well, just, or, I, I we're just ordinary, ordinary, ordinary guys. Guy. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> so am I, so am I. So we're just ordinary guys, and I th I'd like to think we're easy to talk to. And we just happen to be in positions of leadership, and we have wonderful opportunities. And I just see it as a gift of God that we have wonderful opportunities to spread the gospel, and we, we do what we can do, and we pray about it every day. Every morning I get up, I pray, Lord, use me today. Open doors for me today. Make me useful and fruitful today. I don't have too much to add, except uh, it, it, it's important for all of us to realize in every walk of life, pride is our great enemy, and humility is our greatest need. And so uh, we have to... The, the way in which we cultivate that, I suppose, is by surrounding ourselves with others who, who can address us and, and, uh, and sort of see through things and, and challenge us. But also, um, I'm struck in, in Isaiah 66 where, where the Lord says, To this one I will look, to the one who is humble and contrite of heart and who trembles at my word. And so it's a way of checking, diagnosing the degree to which pride takes root. Are you trembling at the word of God? And um, so, so I, I don't know how to say it any differently than that, except that's, that's the constant battle. And that's, but, the, but, but thankfully, the Bible gives us good ways of diagnosing pride. And, and when you take seriously those diagnostic tools that the Bible gives us, you do see areas where, where pride creeps in and, and sometimes in ways that you try to justify, but it's, it's there. And so, and, and, that it, and, and we're reminded of this by almost all of our wisest forebears in the faith that, that that is our great enemy. And so just an awareness of that and a, and a, and a, 
uh, willingness to, to sit under uh, the means that God's given us for diagnosing and dealing with those things. I think that's, uh, it's not the end of the stack, but it's definitely the end of time for this. And uh, thank you. And Dr. Master. Thank you. So I'd invite you just to stand and we'll sing the doxology together and then I'll pray.